Hey folks, and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss how to use psychedelics wisely. We talk about the difference between wisdom and knowledge, setting intentions, educating oneself about the medicine experience, the power of the setting in which psychedelics are experienced, drug interactions, testing your psychedelics, grounding and resourcing, the dark night of the soul, frequency of use, spiritual bypassing, and believe it or not, much, much more. A couple of announcements for you. If you're looking for good training and education pursuant to becoming a psychedelic therapist, you can check out Numinous's training programs. Go ahead and click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection, and you can use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. You've heard Reed and myself reference our work on psychedelic clinical trials a lot on the show. Well, we have a number of trials actively recruiting participants right now, including a psilocybin trial investigating the combination of psilocybin and psychological support for treatment-resistant depression. So if you're curious, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash research to learn more. If you'd like to support our show, you can do so by subscribing to the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. If you're watching us on YouTube, of course, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can leave us a review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And of course, you can share the episode with somebody you think might need to hear it. And now I give you Using Psychedelics Wisely. Let's go. Let's go. Here we are, another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. As is customary, I will ask, how are you doing, Reed? Very well. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> how about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. good. Glad well, to be with here. Glad to be with you here today. What shall we talk about today? As if uh-huh. we gave no thought <laughs> to the topic today. We gave thought last night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're we're uh, trying to practice our vulnerability, flex our vulnerability muscles, and reveal that. Um, yeah, we came up with this topic last night, but it's one that, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't choose a topic that didn't have some worth, right? I mean, I, this one is could be an entire series, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so I'll, I'll jump to cut to the chase here. We're talking about the wise and unwise, potentially wise and unwise use of psychedelics. So you could say like... Uh, how one might use psychedelics for its many uses in a wise way, and some of the potential pitfalls that we can find ourselves in when we approach psychedelics a little thoughtlessly. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, when we were chatting a bit last night back and forth, and and I threw that potential title your way of using psychedelics wisely, uh, I didn't mention it was inspired by this old essay from the maybe early 80s I read by... Have you heard of a guy named Myron Stolaroff? Have you heard of The Secret Chief? Yes. Yeah, he wrote that. Oh, okay. Yeah, which you can find for a low price of like $150 (laughs) out of print on Amazon. Um, And it's interesting. I didn't know this. I didn't really appreciate it before, but that's about this uh, fictitious psychologist who's guiding journeys. And this guy is not a clinician. Mm. He is actually a a brilliant electrical engineer trained at Stanford, invented one of the recording devices that was quickly adopted by Les Paul himself, who Mm. had invented the electric guitar solid body and uh, kind of revolutionized the recording industry. So he made his dent in the universe, inspired 
it seems in large part, like Steve Jobs would say, by LSD. Mm -hmm. So in Myron's next chapter, he studied, he created a research institute um, that was well-funded and, and grew in its impact and led an LSD study, actually LSD and mescaline, studying how it can make you creative. And they gave it to hundreds of people, published mm -hmm. half a dozen papers. Um, but uh, it's interesting, in that essay, he talks about how he was going with his friend to see this guru, this guy, uh, what was his name? The guy who wrote Pathways Through Space, Franklin Merrill Wolf, this like um, American um, mystic inspired by Hinduism. And they go to his office and sit down, and um, they're immediately blown away by the glowing radiating presence of this this guy but they say uh we want to talk to you about psychedelic drugs and he's like and they told him about the study we're doing he's like oh no you haven't taken those yourselves have you hmm. and they're like well yes we have and he's like uh so and so from india says that it will take you seven incarnation seven lifetimes to undo the karmic effects of taking a drug oh wow <laughs> so they just um took that with a grain of salt and as they're driving away had this rebuttal he should have said um something like uh um never underestimate the grace of god is mm -hmm. what they they wanted to say as a rebuttal but it made me think about the biases we all have oh, yeah. uh, the biases and reactions we have to chemical versus plant our favorite substances and the immediate knee-jerk reactions that actually can have more ripple effects than we think, especially if you are uh, working as a guide or therapist, um, or even in our conversations impacting the set and setting and everything that goes into it. Yeah. Great point. It reminds, it makes me wonder about the source of some of those biases. Um, Cause we've talked about, you know, the war on drugs and arguably the propaganda uh, produced by that campaign, how it's influenced the thinking around not only psychedelics, but other chemicals that, that people can use either wisely or unwisely. Um, but, you know, the source of the biases, like you mentioned, for uh, a psychedelic therapist or a guide, mm -hmm. if you have a particular, you know, what your so-called favorite medicine why is it your favorite? Is it your favorite because that's the one you had the most experience with? Is it your favorite because there's lots of good empirical research that suggests it's the right tool for this particular problem or issue? Um, yeah. yeah, I think it pays to be thoughtful about the source of those biases. Yeah, and as we've talked about before, there are plenty of studies showing how people, you know, none of us are that good in these studies at telling the difference between substances, especially when you have different doses of the substances, because uh, they all feel pretty different at a different dose level too. But um, the thing is that guru, uh, maybe he's right, maybe psychedelics, maybe you shouldn't have taken these drugs and they were shortcut and you should have been meditating for hours a day, or maybe he's wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, maybe he has his own blind spots, which I think is more likely because I, you know, in all my, in my four plus decades on this planet and working with people and working um, and just interacting with people, I've never encountered someone who doesn't have blind spots and biases. So I think 
you know, the best I can tell is we need to be aware of our own biases and, and be careful how they spill out in, especially in uh, psychedelic work where there's a lot of uh, not just hype, but suggestibility, vulnerability by nature of the medicine experience. Right. Yeah. 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 If, if anything, it's a case to um, support humble, a humble approach to psychedelics, yeah. whether it's for your own personal exploration or whether you're administering them to others in the context of guidance or therapy. Yeah, because when the dust settles um, of all this debate, like maybe there's no good and bad or wrong or right, and maybe the risk is uh, blindly applying someone else's path to your own, you know. It's a good way to set up this conversation about wise and unwise use of psychedelics because you know, we should make the disclaimer, this podcast today is of course for educational purposes and we don't encourage the use of illegal substances and um you know in the interest of harm reduction we're going to provide some opinions and observations and things like that we're not recommending anything in particular yep um but yeah it's an important way to set the table for the conversation be be accept the very the reality that you're going to have blind spots and that a lot of your decisions are going to be motivated by biases and it pays to try to zoom out adopt that child, child's mind, that yeah. beginner's mind and, um, examine, examine yourself for biases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so know them, uh, explore them, own up to them and, uh, then try and set them aside as we, especially as we interrelate with others on this. But, yeah. um, and then another, important disclaimer that I'd like to throw out is, is that this path is not for everyone. Mm. And I'm, I'm getting more and more clear, uh, at least personally on one of the risks that can come up, um, in people's really difficult and jarring and destabilizing experiences seems to be by them, uh, walking this path through deep, repressed, scary, unconscious material that, they were that can overwhelm your psychic defenses and leave you, uh, leave you in a really kind of shell-shocked place in theory, if not fully prepared and resourced for the experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know preparation and resourcing falls into that category of of so-called wise use of, of approaching psychedelics with some wisdom, and maybe it would be helpful to talk about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it goes without saying, but when I think about it, you know, knowledge is the accumulation of information. And then wisdom is how you deploy or act on that knowledge, mm-hmm. talk about that knowledge. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah. And and you do it in a way that hopefully minimizes harm and maximizes good or in a way that's in alignment with core values. Yeah. Uh, but there is simply a difference. Yeah. Because that, that, I'm glad you mentioned that the, Doing things in alignment with your core values is so key in terms of evaluating a path for yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also because these things become part of your set, especially, and, and influence uh, significantly or can the direction of your experience. Right. So let's back up and zoom out. And of course... With the preamble we just gave, those of you who are listening or watching are going to perhaps even detect our blind spots and and our biases, Mm -hmm. as careful as we're trying to be. Please comment about Steve's biases. (laughs) Yes, please. I could use some fodder for my deep inner inner work. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, I, I, as I was prepping for the episode, I was just thinking about the different ways in which people approach psychedelics and putting judgments aside. Um, certainly they're used medicinally, like in the sense that we're um, using a psychedelic to treat a physical or psychological ailment, as I see it, mm-hmm. um, used to augment or accelerate or enhance psychotherapy, right? The name of our podcast, yeah, Psychedelic yeah. Therapy Frontiers. We talk a lot about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Um, people use them for spiritual and metaphysical exploration, contact with the divine, yeah. uh, deep dives into meaning and purpose. They've been used to that end ceremonially, perhaps throughout history. Interesting books like The Immortality Key that, yep. that examine mm-hmm. the, the possible psychedelic origin story of some of major world religions, or at least the involvement of psychedelic ceremony um, in religious rites and, and, uh, and worship. Um, create, you mentioned mescaline and creativity. You know, there's a, a lot of people who talk about even macro and micro dosing psychedelics for the purpose of creativity oh, yeah. enhancement, thinking outside the box, getting out of outside of our default mode way of thinking. Um, and to that end, using psychedelic journeying for problem solving. Um, These are very different things too. You mm-hmm. mentioned microdosing versus macro dosing as the kind of the big comparison and there's everything in between yeah. like hycro dosing <laughs> museum dosing right. people talk about whatever um but but it's very different uh to take of course half a gram of psilocybin compared to five dried grams mm-hmm. in silent darkness as terence mckenna would say um and uh the disclaimers the risks the tips differ a lot based on those two categories as an example, right? Like yeah. uh, the microdosing, by definition, you're not taking in a in a dosing room or a ceremony space. Right. Technically yeah. supposed to be mm-hmm. sub-perceptual. Um, perceptual in the sense that you might notice you're feeling different. People will sometimes talk about using microdoses of certain psychedelics as like a to replace their Adderall for focus or energy. And I would like to throw out the term sub-perceptual just personally because it's confusing. Uh, you know, we had James Fadiman out to Utah a few years back to give a talk, which was great, you know, as a as one of the pioneers in this space uh, of transpersonal psychology as well, and of microdosing research. Um, a lot of anecdotal, but really helpful preliminary research. But he he would define them as subperceptual, but the way the world uses microdosing now is not in general subperceptual. Mm. I'd say most people who em- embark on a microdosing adventure are looking to feel something that will help them in their day that is perceptual, right. whether it's attention or um, you know viewing the world with uh, increased wonder, um, a little bit of sparkle or maybe added insight. And, and I know some of these you could say are subperceptual. Some are not counted as perceptual changes, right. but many are. And therefore, I just think it's, it's more confusing than helpful, um, in my opinion, just as a rant. <laughs> no, it's a good rant. Yeah. Um, I think we do need updates to the way we talk about these things so that they're more accurate and so that the labels that we give don't mislead people. Yeah. Because... Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so a, a couple more things on this list. You mentioned, I think you mentioned the word recreation. Like s- some people will use psychedelics for pleasure, for joy. I remember we were, we were listening to 
was this at Meet Delic? I think it was Duncan Trussell mm-hmm. up on the stage talking to Aubrey Marcus and and talking about the, the you know, psychedelics generally and the variety of uses. And he made it, he's a comedian, so he made a kind of a funny comment about, let's not forget just pure unbridled hedonism, folks. Like, psychedelics are fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, can, you can have a great time with psychedelics and not have to do deep healing. Again, our disclaimer is about um, encouraging wise use and discouraging unwise or illegal use. But after that talk at that conference, I remember this because... Um, it was kind of a striking uh, um, observation that someone, I was just having dinner with a, a bunch of people uh, from other states um, who I'd kept in touch with. And, and someone said, isn't it interesting that at, the, as the, at these conferences, we talk so much about the research in clinical settings and you know religious, spiritual implications, but no one is talking about how many people are going and doing this with a group of friends or coworkers mm-hmm. uh, in a cabin in the woods? Right. Yeah, and I and I don't even know that the word recreational is the right word to describe that particular use. You know, I'm I'm thinking yeah. of people who are using psychedelics with their friends in a cabin in the woods. It's it's like intimacy enhancement or a way to to um, connect. A way um, for them to do the same thing in a different setting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah like therapeutic for many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the potential for intimacy enhancement is, should not be understated with certain psychedelic tools. And, um, certainly in the therapy world, there's, there were back in the days when, before MDMA was made illegal, there was, it was one of the favorite tools of a lot of couples therapists to Mm -hmm. help enhance intimacy and, and among non partners, just like Mm -hmm. closeness. There's, there's nothing like going through a, a crazy, ayahuasca ceremony with a group of friends to make you feel connected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've talked about the shared ordeal on yeah. here before that, that, uh, that I something like an ayahuasca ceremony can provide a group of people and oftentimes a group of strangers, right? You're going to a far off land and you're taking this ancient tea and everyone's having their own particular experience, but there's yeah. some, there are these through lines and, and connecting threads that connect all the people in the group. And then, you commune afterward and debrief about the shared ordeal. There's something especially bonding about that for a lot of people. Yeah, and the term ordeal reminds me of, and this is a bit of a, a side note, but it reminds me of the hero's journey, of course, because it's a part of it, and uh, how useful that can be as a framework um, for navigating or using psychedelics wisely. Like, talk about putting it in perspective uh, from the call to do it and making sure one is called to being ready for something difficult to uh, looking for the gifts, the lesson, and bringing that back to integrate into your life and offering to the world. Yeah, it's yeah, a good point. So maybe the, the hero's journey is a good archetype or template to uh, use psych- psychedelics wisely or navigating, educating oneself about what one might expect from a psychedelic journey um, so that you're not wandering or wading into to unsafe or uncharted waters without a little, a little prep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in fact, uh, what's that Joseph Campbell quote, follow your bliss. And I like this. And the universe will open doors where there were only walls. Mm. Um, I just, I like that sentiment because there is something magical. I don't know the physics or cosmic law that, um, 
that states this clearly. It probably hasn't been discovered yet, but but like as we show up for something with like pure with integrity and and pure intent and sustain our attention on it, there's some like unfolding that like the the inner healer can take uh, the wheel and you know there there is that uh, you know strikingly increased likelihood of uh, of getting something out of it when one takes that stance right yeah. so maybe as a form of generic um, harm reduction counsel or education one way to use psychedelics wisely is to approach them with intention right we, we talk about intention yeah. setting as a, an important and integral part of the psychedelic assisted therapy um, journey for mm-hmm. people but you know why are you doing it at least be clear with yourself and with the universe about why you're embarking on this psychedelic journey. I used to uh, apply that to any substance that would go into my body, Mm -hmm. (laughs) asking the question like, okay, why is, why would I be ingesting this thing or, or taking this tequila shot or drinking (laughs) this glass of wine or whatever. Um, But then I didn't drop that. I added to it, uh, like of behavioral things too. Like, um, why would I be, um, deciding to do this activity? Is it numbing, avoiding? And if so, am I doing that on purpose? Like, is that a good idea in that moment? Or is it, uh, is it with some kind of intention? I think that's one uh, way to keep everything in check as far as, you know, frequency and appropriateness and, and developing positive adaptive ha- habits instead of getting kind of blindly slipped into, stuck in maladaptive patterns that are hard to undo. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's useful to examine that for oneself. Or am I being tugged around by some maladaptive habits and patterns or a desire to avoid discomfort at all costs? Am I being driven by um, insecurities or fear of the unknown? Because uh, all those things can, can I'll, I'll put quotes around the word call. They can feel like a calling mm-hmm. to psychedelics. Um, I think related to that, perhaps an unwise approach to psychedelics is approaching them with the hope that they will just fix you, right? Mm-hmm. That they will take your problems away, take your pain away. Or maybe somewhat related, just reveal to you the truth of what's going on inside of you. You know, there's, there's this understandable hope in a lot of people who use psychedelics that it's going to, it's going to be like a God that gets in there and, mm-hmm. and gives them all the answers to their existential questions. Yeah. A panacea. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we talk about this on a recent episode? I'm trying to remember of, uh, what Ram Dass says about all tools can be traps. Was that another conversation? No, I think you did mention that yeah. a few weeks ago. But just a reminder in the spirit of that awareness of anything we take into our body or any things we use as practices, even a meditation practice, a yoga practice, um, like all these potentially beautiful tools can also be misused or mm-hmm. used used unwisely, or they can become traps, crutches, if you will. Um, and uh, that's worth keeping in mind too. Yeah. It always, whenever you bring that up, it reminds me of the, the, the term spiritual bypassing, mm-hmm. um, coined by the, in the eighties, I think by that Buddhist psychologist, John Wellwood, that this idea of, of searching for the ecstatic 
um, the, the yeah. so-called spiritual experience as a way of avoiding the work, not actually engaging in and doing the work. Yeah. Um, and that happens with psychedelics. It can happen with, you know, people who are going to go one Tony Robbins seminar to the next with, without taking time to reflect on the experience that you had and, um, a plan or a deliberate effort at integration and examination before you move on to the next ecstatic experience. Yeah. And that's a good, a good important point too, on both frequency and stopping, mm. like, uh, from a frequency standpoint, you know, I like to ask that question. We've, we, we've talked about it before of have I sufficiently integrated the last thing, mm -hmm. right? And then from a stopping standpoint, or at least pausing, uh, I like to use Alan Watts saying, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm. Um, because, and just ask oneself, like, um, you know, I haven't traveled to an ayahuasca ceremony in almost a year, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and it hasn't felt like a call. Um, I guess psychedelic peer pressure is another thing we could talk <laughs> about. Right. But, uh, but really, um, yeah, really keeping that in mind as we, as we evaluate the need and, uh, and keep it in mind the frequency, because I think the natural inclination for many, not everyone, is to, is to uh, jump right back in, go for, you know, jump into that, try and get a little more of that bliss or that insight without doing the grunt work, like Jack Cornfield says in his book title, After Ecstasy, The Laundry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the sort of, and another fun aphorism that we often quote, the before enlightenment, before enlightenment chop would carry water, after enlightenment chop would carry water. I'm always listening carefully to see if you or I mix those things up. Chop water, carry wood. We, yeah. <laughs> in the early days of the podcast, we thought about making a shirt that was uh, funny images of people chopping water and <laughs> maybe <laughs> carrying wood. Maybe we should just write it and see how many people notice. That'd be funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers swag. We keep threatening to release <laughs> swag. I think we should do it. Um, I think it's also okay to allow for some ambiguity around the question, have I sufficiently integrated a previous psychedelic experience? Because it's not always going to be super clear to a person what, yeah. that, what sufficient integration actually looks like or feels like. Um, but I think to, to your point, um, if you're rushing back to the medicine to avoid something or uh, simply because you want to dive back into the waters of ecstasy, uh, when your original intent was for healing or understanding or transformation, that maybe just pause, take yeah. some time. And uh, it is something that's tricky to answer in a concrete way, but um, the best approach I've found is just to uh, make myself show the work, mm. meaning like I journal as part of integration. And like, what were my intentions? What did I write about after? And especially like... What happened next? Did I, um, did I connect some dots? Did I make uh, a plan to bring something into day-to-day -day life? And how did that go? Mm -hmm. And uh, then at least there's something. Like, did I integrate at least the basics? You might have had a million other things come up that you weren't expecting. Maybe you didn't even write down. And um, I realized that life is a journey, we're all on it, and we're integrating every day of our lives, medicine or not. But, but the, I do like that 
check-in process of, uh, okay, what, what have I, what have I learned from the last one? And, um, and what would I be going in again for? Yeah. Yeah. Super valuable. I've even heard accounts of psychedelic experiences where people went back into a medicine and what they got was, why are you here? Right. Why are you back? Like you're asking me this, me, right? This entity Uh or the medicine or whatever. You're asking me the same questions you asked last time. And this is, this is what I gave you. There's no new information here. Like you gotta, you gotta go back and, and, and do what you just described, right? Examine and implement. And I realized that sometimes that's the way someone gets the message, right? right? right. And Good point. Um, it's, it is important. It's tricky stuff, and it's important to uh, like approach it intuitively, wisely, carefully, slowly, and, and check in as we go because, uh, yeah, in the end, you're left to, uh, with your best assessment of all that, just trust the unfolding. Right. There's Whatever few... that means. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means, folks. Um, there are a few other like practical, tactical harm reduction type pieces of information we could probably talk about. Like um, for those of you who have made the decision to acquire psychedelic compounds um, mm. illegally, and you know we we know people do this, right? Of course, it uh, goes without saying. It's important that you can trust your source or that you test the medicine that you get. Uh, we're hearing now a lot about fentanyl contamination. Oh, yeah. And, you know, arguably less common that you're going to get fentanyl-laced dried mushrooms. But, you know, if the medicine you're using is in crystalline or powdered form, uh, you should test it. And yeah. we've, we've mentioned a couple different websites like DanceSafe or... Um, yeah, have... Not just the reagents for psychedelic testing, um, which come with instructions mm-hmm. and are not that hard to use. It may seem daunting if you have five or ten bottles of little reagents and you have to put gloves on because they burn your skin. <laughs> I, I realize that. But but also fentanyl test strips are probably the simplest part of the equation and the absolute, like, the most mandatory because Mm -hmm. if you were to get um, MDA instead of MDMA, you know, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, something laced with fentanyl is the ultimate example of what you absolutely need to avoid. And it does show up, especially in in other countries. Like I was disturbed to see reports of people finding, acquiring fentanyl-laced medicines in a pharmacy when traveling to another country like that um, because these are like kind of counterfeit generics and mm-hmm. um, that got contaminated. It's shocking. Yeah. 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 I saw a report where somebody had done, had taken samples from uh, a pharmacy out of the country of, you know, name brand drugs and tested them. And more often than not, like not, it wasn't rare. It was more often than not. They either, they either weren't the medicine that they the label indicated they were, or they were laced with other things, dangerous things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what does Dance Safe say as their slogan? Like, know your substances or something. <laughs> right. And it's true. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a similar strategy would be you could have certain rules for yourself. Like, I'm not going to put anything in my body that was handed to me. Right. I, I, I'm only going to use medicines that I've tested myself. Um, so, I mean, just this might seem like a no-brainer to some, but there are enough people getting hurt and some people dying as a result of unsafe practices. 
Yeah, what was the substance? There was some story from the early days I was reading. I can't remember what what drug it was, but some early psychonaut researcher at the time when it was really customary, like Albert Hoffman did, to dip your finger in it and try it yourself, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is a bold move, when, especially when you're on the microgram, microgram scale of a substance. But there was one researcher who was in the habit of like recruiting neighbors to uh, take these, to test these with him because, you know, you need more of a sample size of one. But then there was one thing where they were all just like leveled on the floor for hours and then puking for hours mm. um, because uh, the dose was just unknown at the time and they took way more than one would dare to take now. <laughs> yeah. So... So by the definition of the title of this episode, that seems unwise (laughs) (laughs) to approach it that way. Yeah. Yep. Um, Well, cool. So what uh, we've covered the, like the types of use. Mm -hmm. And of course it makes sense to talk about the biggies, how to optimize for set and setting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, among other things. And, And I've heard many people argue that the setting is the more important of those two variables, but what's your opinion? Um, that's hard to have an opinion on because I, mm-hmm. I can think of ways in which the setting would trump the set. Yeah. Um, Can't pick a favorite child of those, but <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, they're definitely equally important. But yeah, like I said, I, I, I can imagine if somebody, their intention, right? They've really cultivated this mindset of having a deep healing experience with a psychedelic. Yeah. And they choose to take it in a, a I don't know, in a Metallica concert or something like that. Um, that setting is going to pull a lot of weight for the type of experience oh, yeah. that, that you have. And this is an extreme example, but um, extreme example just to make the point. So, and but I could also imagine a scenario in which your, your set perhaps could trump the setting. I th- there's so many more factors that like internally that go into the set. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need a bare bones minimum like safety um, kind of set up for your setting. But then, you know, the set is like we're talking about with your intentions and resources and all your past experiences and what is underneath the hood that you do not even know about. Right. Um you know, or the kind of day you had, all are significant factors. Those are really, yeah, really significant factors that I think a lot of people, even we're probably guilty of this too. And when we've talked about psychedelic assisted therapy and the importance of the mindset of giving the impression that, you know, when you set your intention, your psychedelic journey will be about that intention. I don't know that I've ever uttered that sentence in a form of education because it's not necessarily the case, right? Because yeah. of all the things you just outlined, you you can have a really well-crafted intention, a, a really honest desire for the outcome of a particular psychedelic therapy session. And it can, and your session, your medicine experience can have absolutely nothing to do with, at least apparently, yeah. nothing to do with that intention. Sometimes, like we also say, the, the, um, the navigation instructions instead are trust, let go, yeah. surrender, be open, stay curious. But I, I do think, you know, I agree with you and think that one's intention, attitude, aspirations for the journey, expectations even, mm. they can and usually will uh, influence at least how you direct your attention before, during, after. 
and determine how you're going to interact with the material you encounter. Mm. And therefore, um, yeah, that it is a huge deal in my mind and has even unseen forces. Um, and then on, you know, on the same note, we have to really get comfortable dealing with uncomfortable stuff to go into this because that can be, and often is where the rubber meets the road on what happens next, right? Like resisting discomfort intensifies pain, surrender, on the other hand, acceptance, uh, uh, often uh, can result in that opening expansion, fulfillment, ability to, you know, move through and encounter these things, these right. insights. Yeah. Right. So perhaps wise, one aspect of wise use of psychedelics would be to develop some distress tolerance or an attitude of, of surrender and will, I guess willingness might be a good word here too, like a, a willingness to feel very uncomfortable, a willingness to turn toward discomfort and fear and confusion rather yeah. than turn away from it. Then when you get in there, like when you open the door to the unconscious, you do not know what you're going to encounter right. and you're not in charge of that, even though it can be influenced, right? You can... It can amplify what's alive in you, what's already stirred up, what's top of mind, heart. Um, and uh, some people, it is something you can learn. Like some people learn how to navigate it uh, more and more skillfully. Or, um, and that can be really helpful. Like it can be helpful within the, the structure of this intention and uh, balanced with letting go and surrender. But it can also be a trap too is over control and over, um, you know, over exertion of your own agenda to the process, your ego's agenda, if you will, and uh, needs to be another thing. Like many of the many of these things we're talking about needs to be done intuitively, carefully. Right. So, what would you say are some wise navigation tactics? Just I'm just sort of riffing on what you just said because. You know, you you did say, you you did imply the importance of, um, you know, re, mm -hmm. re, using your intention as a le, as a way to focus the journey, but also being willing to go with the flow. Uh, don't fall into that trap of over controlling of using the tool of an intention as a trap. Um, what would be some hot tips on wise navigation? Yeah, so we were talking about discomfort and getting comfortable with that. Um, there are many ways to practice that as simple as sitting in stillness for three minutes and and seeing what comes up in your body and mind that is uncomfortable or restless um, to sitting in an ice cold tub of water or uh, whatever it may be. People have all sorts of wild, crazy surrender discomfort practices that we've talked about and tried out quite a bit like Sananga eye drops mm, and mm -hmm. uh, hape and and things like that. I know they're not all discomfort, but but that's uh, that's w one big one that comes to mind. You know, tools and resources like breath and how to and ground control skills. Knowing you're going to have to like use these wisely and not not over control. Um, and then uh, and then there are some tips on 
like navigating the potential for overthinking and mm. getting caught up in the spinning mind, overanalyzing, um, not feeling and opening one's heart as much because the mind's so active. We talk about that a lot with our ketamine clients, uh, pre-flight. Right. Our pre-flight instructions, if you will. Yeah. Um, there's something in you said that I thought would be useful to highlight, and then I lost it. What was it? It was... Uh... I'll just do my run-on sentence all over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, shoot. Yeah, I totally lost it. So uh, when you're struggling with overthinking, what can you do? Like, what are some tips you give to people just to dive in on one of those points? Yeah, so that's what it was. It was... Um, Ooh, it was, I guessed it. <laughs> it was, was grounding, you know, because we've, we're talking about the importance of surrender, right, and turning toward the discomfort. But um, there, there are moments when it's okay to resource and to ground. So perhaps, Triff, on your specific question with the overthinking, if you find yourself in a thought spiral or a thought loop, it can be helpful to just do something that shifts the energy or shifts your focus. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard an ayahuasca guide once say, you know, there's a few things you can do to create a shift like that. One is your breath, changing the depth or the rate of your breath or the location in your chest or stomach where you're focusing your breath. Another is your posture. So mm -hmm. if you feel frozen, yeah. in, frozen in the fetal position and it's leading to a particular thought loop or you feel trapped in a, in a particular space or chapter of your experience, you know, get up and move. Get into child's pose, stand up if you're not too wobbly, lie on your back, you know, changing posture, flexing certain muscles, contracting, extending. Yeah. So those, those are a few things. If, if there's music involved, changing the song, you know, we talk about the power of music being the wind in the sails of a psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. Shifting the music can have a profound effect too. Yeah. There, no, there's so much, so much you can do, even like coming back to your intention as an anchor, mm. just like a simple version of your intention that might be useful as a mantra during or um, or sometimes I like to just remember to scan the body for the place of most sensation or any sensation that catches your attention and lean in there just yeah. like blow it up uh, zoom in on it feel it pump it up see what what is underneath that like why is there this sensation or um, because I mean, even that question <laughs> can be a trap. Mm -hmm. Why is this in my mind? Why is this in my experience? Why am I feeling this in my body? Um, if, if that comes up, it's got to be really careful. Uh, so it's not a trap of more overthinking. Um, so there is that balance of these, uh, these questions, whether it's from a guide or within yourself, mm -hmm. um, that can help steer you, uh, to, like opening to the experience or could uh, send you into a thinking spiral even more. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I'll tell people, if you're stuck in a thinking spiral that was caused by why questions, try to shift to what questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So instead of like, why, why is this discomfort right here in my body? You shift to, what is it? Let me just observe it. Yeah. Let me just get curious about it and see what unfolds, to use a word you used earlier. Yeah, so I think what we want to avoid is we talked about how you don't know what you're going to get when you crack open the unconscious, mm -hmm. right? And we all have this uh, collection of life experience and including 
the painful stuff that gets uh, maybe repressed, uh, walled off, protected because it needed to be at the time. And when that comes up, um, you know, we want to be ready for it and have tools for that because we want what we don't want to avoid is what some would call uh, a reaction of psychotic escape, mm-hmm. if you will, or like just like not just I want this to be over, but complete panic of like get me out of here and stop something that you cannot, in fact, stop. You can navigate with these tools and skills, and sure, there's some medicines that could be that some people use, especially in medical settings, to um, intervene, like rescue meds, if you will. But, So-called trip stoppers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're not even that immediate or universal trip stoppers. Like mm-hmm. often that's a benzodiazepine or an antipsychotic, but, but uh, you know, it makes, uh, it makes sense to really focus on this in the preparation phase, personally and with people, and be ready to look for the early warning signs so you don't get to that place because it's really hard to reel back in from and sometimes can be one of the things that leads to lingering difficult experiences. Yeah, yeah getting really stuck in that sort of fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. Panic mode. Yep, yeah, like we said, the path isn't for everyone and along the way to that that whatever you want to call it source god consciousness uh um like pure insight there is uh, often a closet of our own shadow that we have to go through um for, for some people it might be just like distracting fun visuals or other insights but but we do have to pass these different chambers or experiences if you will on the way to touching into that and uh and the scary repressed like skeletons in the closet old pain um sometimes we're not even fully aware of can be uh can really blindside someone right so simply knowing that that's possible educating yourself that that's possible maybe not even possible it's it's uh typical of a of a psychedelic experience is a part of wise use right educating yourself about the nature of the psychedelic journey the heroic uh hero's journey aspect or nature of it is a part of wise use um you know to educate yourself as much as you can and of course while you're doing that manage the expectations that will be generated by that education because you can read a lot of people's experiences with a particular psychedelic medicine or compound and um, fool yourself into thinking that you know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but I think some education would fall into that category of, of wise use. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, not, sure. not, every, not every psychedelic is the same either. And although we can't, I don't know that I, at least I can say with confidence that I could be prescriptive to say, well, this particular medicine is going to give you this particular experience. Yeah, yeah. It's good for this particular problem. Some people would, would say those things with confidence, but... Um, there are differences, uh, and not not to totally derail it, but there are also, like you were saying earlier, with when we were talking about micro, medium, macro doses, different medicines can act differently at different doses too. Mm-hmm. One question I like to ask myself before embarking on a psychedelic journey, or other people before, if as they're considering it, that I got from. Uh, it was actually a talk at the MAPS conference, the Yaden panel on uh, um, some of the difficulties that can happen. But it was a question of, and we talked about on here a bit, 
are you uh, prepared to fully fall apart? Or mm. could you, you know, have a breakdown in that experience and be okay? And I know we don't really know the answer to that, but does it feel like you can fall apart and bounce back? Yeah. yeah. I like that you said we, we don't really know. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about trying to answer that question for myself and, and I, I want to say, well, yeah, but I, I can also say with honesty that I don't exactly know what fall apart would even really feel like or mean for me. Yeah. So then that makes me think, okay, if I can't possibly know exactly what it's going to mean, I have a general sense of what falling apart might mean for me. What are some things that I have in my environment or in my relationships or some precautions I could take that would make falling apart a softer landing for me? So, you know, ensuring that I have solid support from a spouse or a friend group or a community would, I think, would yeah. apply there. But I can relate to what you said as even before this conference, I've been just naturally um, finding myself trying on that question every time, especially in, in certain settings. I think it it uh, relates to the setting too, because like, uh could you fall apart at this concert you're thinking of taking a psychedelic at and be okay where there's, you know, the security officers over there or your coworkers that you're going with? <laughs> um, uh, if you're thinking about a home experience, um, what if your kids, loved ones are in the room or roommates, neighbors, whatever, um, and that's a, a whole nother consideration that can help uh, look at the setting. You can't control for it all, but there are some obvious, obvious things that many people overlook, just like, you know, the likelihood of, of uh, someone knocking on the door mm -hmm. uh, that you need to respond to during, or someone coming home that may, not most days, but does some days at that given time, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah, those are great tips about the setting. Um, you know, to the extent that you have control over it, uh, you you want to make sure that you have a predictable and safe feeling setting. Because um, even if there's some doubt in there, your unconscious is going to bookmark that and bring that fear yeah. and nervousness <laughs> in, into the psychedelic experience. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that play out time and time again, um, even if it's not a, a real threat, but uh, your worries find a way of playing themselves out during the journey often. Yeah. Right. Which is part of the potential benefit. Like if you're, if you're going f for that, if you're ready for that. Yeah. Right. Um, other aspects of wise and unwise use. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to combine psychedelic drugs or to combine psychedelic drugs with other not so psychedelic drugs. So um, again, in the interest of harm reduction, if you're going to do that. It would pay off to get as educated as possible on mm -hmm. what might be on the menu if you combine certain medicines. Uh, you know, certainly there's a, a history among medicine users or in psychedelic users of, of combining cannabis or even maybe alcohol sometimes with psychedelics. Or in an ayahuasca context, they might admit, you mentioned hoppe earlier, they might administer hoppe or, or blow tobacco smoke at you at, at some point. So be thoughtful if you make mm -hmm. that decision. Yeah, there people are more and more interested in combinations of psychedelics too. Especially, there was a recent paper suggesting how, you know, MDMA might be helpful 
in combination with a classic psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD and reducing some of the um, kind of distress associated with it. And that that may be true if used wisely. And we're talking about like one study and a theoretically interesting idea um, that who knows what's going to happen with you and all these other medical pharmacologic factors matter. Yeah. So we've, we've, paid, we've paid special attention to set and setting. Um, you know, we talked about the various ways that people use psychedelics. Um, we've talked about testing medicines. We've talked about the, the perils and pitfalls of spiritual bypassing. Um, and I did talk about this a little bit before, but I, I think it does pay off in the form of wise use to educate yourself a bit about the potential phenomenology of a psychedelic experience. Again, we're being cautious about setting expectations too concretely about what I'm going to experience. But, you know, when we do this in the context of psychedelic assisted therapy, we'll often go through a list of what might, what a person might experience on ketamine, experience on ketamine, for example, like that it's has a tendency to feel dissociating. You might feel like you're floating around in space. It could be dreamlike, could be very visual or not very visual. Um, you know, you might feel like your body's obliterated and you, you join consciousness with the universe and words are often insufficient to describe these experiences. Psychedelics are experiences are often described as ineffable, right? Hard to find words. I know that you've made some comments about the effability or ineffability of psychedelic experiences before, but, um, yeah, I think these are important things to cover. Yeah. Isn't it interesting to think about how all the people every day in the world, going into a procedure or something where they're given ketamine, um, they're not going in with those expectations, right? <laughs> right? Um, and sure, sometimes there's a accidental, a accidental mystical experience, and often the intention directs your attention, mm. which uh, makes it naturally more likely to see an experience and kind of cultivate something. But... Um, and then these things sometimes just happen naturally, whether it's the mystical blissful variety or the dark night of the soul variety. Um, and of course, what we're talking about is the purposeful, intentional use of these substances. And and while that matters, the pitfalls of it and the potential benefits. Um, but on the, the dark night of the soul thing, I wanted to get your thoughts on it because... Um, that term comes from uh, this old book, Mysticism, written by this, this lady who said, uh, the dark night of the soul is a final precursor before your spiritual union with the divine, something mm. like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting idea, and I think it can be, but wanted to get your thoughts on, on that and the dark night of the soul in general. Yeah, I mean, at least the way that I have thought about the dark night of the soul, not knowing its origin, by the way, so that's a cool thing I just learned from you, but um, has been that similar, that it is a, a sort of chapter on the hero's journey, a stop on the hero's journey that's not only um, typical, but maybe essential. That mm-hmm. it, it is perhaps only through that narrow pass of the dark night of the soul that you can whether it's, you know, join unity with God consciousness or gain the most valuable insights on why you suffer or where really potent and durable transformation can occur. It's almost, I don't know if I want to use the word earn, 
but it's, it's almost like there are certain boons that can only be granted to one who has passed through that tribulation of the dark night of the soul. Like you've uh, pointed out on here a lot before, beware of unearned wisdom. Right. Yeah. Who said that? Uh, Carl Jung. Yeah. In reference That's to psychedelics, right. actually. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll have a lot of uh, kind of great thinkers caution people on that. Like the Beatles got way into psychedelics, you know, of, of, to the point where they're burying piles of it in their under the lawn in their yard to have access to it. Um, but then, you know, their guru in India says, no more. Ram Dass, same thing with Maharaji and his journey. Um, not uh, an absolute, I think for him, wasn't necessarily an absolute, like one day it was never again, but it was like, give up the tools. Right. Um, they have potential to become traps or you, you have what you need for your next part of the journey. Right. Another curiosity I have about the dark night of the soul, and again, this is just a curiosity, is I, I wonder if sometimes the the sort of panic room of fight or flight that you described earlier can be mistaken for a yeah. productive dark night of the soul experience, because I don't think that they're the same. Yeah, I think it's used in a lot of ways. Like I've heard people talk about the half an hour of their ayahuasca experience that was the dark night of the soul. But I've talk, heard other people talk about the six months of like excruciating, destabilized uh, midlife crisis and uh, um, mood swings and, and nervous system uh, uh, being frazzled and everything else as dark night of the soul. And, and those uh, may both be these kind of passages, but yeah. uh, they also seem quite different in their impact on someone's life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting observation, though, that, per, that the dark night of the soul could be what happens after the psychedelic experience. You know, we've talked about yeah. certain people's experiences where they might have uh, a very blissful, revel revelatory psychedelic experience. And from this sort of IFS parts perspective, that might have been facilitated by taking certain protectors offline and then you get that sort of rubber banding or snapback effect where, you know, all of a sudden the insecurities and the protectors come back because they weren't fully on board with being taken offline. And so there's a lot of struggle thereafter. And it, it could be useful in terms of this dark night of the soul, useful struggle, I mean, um, especially with the right support. And if you can handle it, like with that support and time and space, like can you fall apart for a few months? Like... Like we were talking about asking yourself, you don't know what fall apart means, but, uh, but that at least in hindsight helps determine, uh, you know, was that a, uh, productive or not? Like, was the, was it unearned wisdom mm. turned into a dark night? Right. Know, right. A prolonged one. But I do generally like the idea of sort of the night's darkest just before the dawn and, and that there's something really useful about uh, going through that passage to to experience the the like I was saying before the the insights that are only available to one if they're willing to face their shadow. Yeah, so many uh, sayings kind of represent it. Everything from "What doesn't kill you makes you stronger," or whatever, and uh, dark nights produce bright stars and all mm -hmm. that. But what's mm -hmm. interesting is uh, that same. Um, 
author. I think it was Underhill, the book Mysticism. I think it's uh, in that early description where it's like the dark night of the soul is not only where we uh, encounter and come to terms with our own personal shadow, but an equally important part of that is uh, coming to terms with encountering, accepting the collective shadow and uh, the the you know the darkness that is present not just in each of us but in society and humanity and uh yeah another thing i wanted to get your perspective on cuz it's a a beautiful idea but also a daunting one <laughs> yeah it makes me think of my my graduate school education and learning about the early existentialists the early existential psychologists who talked about some of these fundamental existential questions or realities that one has to grapple with if they are to become well or fully actualized. And um, and they're pretty bleak, like, you know, mm-hmm. that life ends and oblivion awaits you or... <laughs> like Albert Camus' whole ideas right. or Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah Sartre, or, you know, that, that we are fundamentally alone, we enter this world alone, we leave it alone. And, and these are all debatable philosophies, but... Everyone dies, not debatable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but what what part of you dies and what part of you persists, if anything? And um, I think psychedelics have a unique way of uh, con- of having us confront these existential yeah. issues. And, and like you're saying, they're not just individually existential; they can be collectively existential. And we've yeah. we've talked a lot about having um, Chris Bashan, the author of LSD and the Mind of the Universe, to talk about that book and his experience with these high dose LSD sessions. And when you read about his experiences, holy cow, if anyone faced the the collective existential dread of humanity Mm -hmm. in successive psychedelic experiences, it was this guy. So those are definitely on the menu. And there are infinite uh, realms to explore and corners of the inner space to explore. And that's another area for putting our judgments aside. Like someone like that book author, what was it? LSD, Diamonds, and the Mind of the Universe? So LSD and the Mind of the Universe, okay. yeah. Chris, not Chris, Diamonds. Is diamonds there. from Heaven is the subtitle. Okay, yeah. yeah, I thought it was in there somewhere. But um, but uh, for someone to explore and document and share with the world is a, is a contribution, and I think he would be the first to admit that that path isn't for everyone, no. <laughs> right? Yeah, certainly not for everyone. And he, he's a unique dude, the little bit that I've learned about him, and like I said, the, the intent is to get him on the show to talk yeah. about it. So, yeah. So, um, but I like that you pointed that out because I think the premise of exploring the collective shadow or the need to is built on this like spiritual concept that we are all one mm-hmm. and psychedelics, the mystical experience, um, have as a part of it for, many people, at least one of the possible experiences is that of unity. Mm. And a lot of the spiritual paths um, talk about discovering the the unity and interconnectedness in us all. And, and I think it makes sense through that lens, too, that we need to come to terms with the collective suffering and shadow, of course. Yeah. 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 And I think one way to experience the truth of a thing is to experience its absence. You know, there's this idea of contrast Yeah, that one of the reasons we are able to feel ecstasy and joy and, you know, connection is because we can feel misery and terror and isolation and psychedelic journeys have a way of giving that to you in spades, right? (laughs) Giving, showing you that contrast 
Like here, I remember one particular psychedelic journey I had where I had some intentions around exploring divinity. And uh, I said something like, you know, God, are you there? (laughs) And I got this communication like, yeah, I'm here and I'm you. You want to know what it feels like to feel like God? And I was like, sure. Wow. Holy cow. I'm God. And then it was like, and you're not. And Uh all of a sudden that was gone and I was terrified and alone and impotent and um, so yeah, the, the, the way psychedelics can serve up contrast is one way I think that you, that, uh, experiencing dark night of the soul or these existential questions can happen. Yeah. It's, you mentioned the difference between knowledge and wisdom and this example, I'm just thinking highlights the difference between like, you know, just knowledge and like an embodied knowing It can also be, you know, part of that, uh, you know, the mystical experience, of course, is just a sense of knowing. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, psychedelics, because of the full sensory experience, the visual, the emotional, and the experiential quality, have a way of teaching lessons that you may have heard a hundred times mm. in a lecture or read in a book or heard from advice from your mom or whatever it is, but... Uh, when it's when it's taught to you like your experience, uh, you remember. <laughs> yeah, was it Michael Pollan in How to Change Your Mind? He, or maybe in one of his interviews, he talks about how the the wisdom in Hallmark cards becomes really really potent yeah. on psychedelics. <laughs> like these these things that have been drained, they're they're pedantic, they're basic because they've been repeated so often. They've been drained of their potency, um, are imbued with potency anew. When you are get, when your mind's taken offline, the default mode and all the preconceived preconceived notions and biases are relaxed, and you can experience the truth of love is all you need, or we are all one, mm-hmm. um, in an embodied yeah. way, and like you're talking about. Then it's not a cheesy card; it's an absolute truth. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a fundamental truth. Yeah, it's it's true, and um, it kind of reminds me of another Jungism of like if you wish to help someone. You got to be able to accept them as they are, and you can only really do this by accepting yourself as you are, mm. including your shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, super important. Well, other thoughts on wise and unwise use. Um, I was thinking about the research that's available on psychedelic assisted therapy or psychedelic treatment and the different protocols that have been studied. Because sometimes we'll get questions like, you know, like we were referencing earlier, how often yeah. is it wise to use psychedelics? What's what's a good way to approach it from a therapeutic perspective? And we should say from at least an empirical vantage point, those those questions are still being investigated. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the MAPS trials and how, you know, at least in the PTSD clinical trials, it was three medicine sessions surrounded by a lot of preparation and integration sessions. And the medicine sessions were separated by somewhere between three or four weeks, 21 yeah. to, I think I wrote it down, 21 to 35 days. Yeah. And they studied both two sessions and three sessions initially in the early kind of pre-phase three stuff, especially. And that three sessions was the best estimate with that initial data on what would help the most, the highest number of people. But it also highlights the fact that the needs are different for each individual mm-hmm. and um, in our depression studies with psilocybin, for example, in the LSD study we just did for anxiety, those were, s- and in an upcoming DMT study, they're single dose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important to point out and also point out that um, 
that is being debated, like you said. It's not like I really think that some people's uh, severe treatment-resistant depression may need more than one. Right. And uh, and hopefully, and we've certainly seen it play out that some people just need one. Right. Um, with the right you know, preparation and integration, of course. Um, and then if you're looking at like over, conditions that are particularly uh, sticky or um, difficult to treat, I'm thinking of some over-control kind of phenotypes like OCD, anorexia. The mm -hmm. thought is that maybe more frequent uh, dose, more not more frequent, the uh, higher number of total dosing sessions with more integration as well might be needed, maybe even higher doses to uh, address these kind of walls of resistance that can be naturally present in anyone and especially in some conditions where we're kind of walling uh, parts of ourself off or parts of life or parts of pain. Right. And these are empirical questions that can be investigated yeah. with the scientific method. We aren't yet at precision psychedelic medicine territory. Um, it's really, really difficult to say this is mm -hmm. what works for this type of person every time. And frankly, there's very little, if anything like that, in modern therapy or medicine anyway. Um, and em empirical labs aren't the only place to draw wisdom from either. You know, we, we often talk yeah. about the ancient wisdom traditions that have a lot of psychotechnology and experience and approaches that the Western scientific world is either ignored at our own peril or discounted or yeah. just hasn't, haven't assimilated yet. Yeah. But it is, uh, there are some things we can point out that are pretty clear in that, um, MDMA is certainly different in its safety profile than psilocybin, LSD, and many of these others in terms of what is thought to be safe in terms of frequency. Like the, you know, when people ask me about that MAPS protocol, I think that three to four plus, plus, plus weeks in between is an important thing to point out because with MDMA, you do have some neurotransmitter depletion. There is an upside where there can be some neurotoxicity at really high doses mm -hmm. that is known and you know needs extra caution compared to people who might be microdosing or more a classic psychedelic with a different different safety profile um, for a period of time. Right. Yeah. And there's also the potential for interaction effects with other medicines that people might be taking. I'm not talking now about combining psychedelics, but you know, yeah. people who are on SSRIs or whatever, who then go use a serotonergic psychedelic. Or some things that kind of catch us off guard as a field or come to light in interesting ways. I'm thinking about the combination of lithium and classic psychedelics, for mm. example, that that isn't as uh, commonly talked about or considered as something like, you know, an SSRI. Is it okay on, on uh, psilocybin, on LSD? What about ayahuasca? A whole new consideration with the MAOI. But, uh, but uh, there was this paper written about the increase in... Uh, like anecdotal reports on sites like Arrowhead or in people's trip reports of people who had a really tough experience um, when they had lithium and a, and a psychedelic. And that has led to uh, 
peeling away some other layers and at least coming up with a working theory of of why and how that makes sense and how it was analyzed in such a way that that's the signal that, while not crystal clear yet, shouldn't be ignored. Yeah. I mean, just it, as a curiosity, it makes me wonder about the other confounding factors. Because if yeah. people taking lithium are have maybe bipolar disorder, yeah. uh, could that also explain a difficult experience, maybe independent of the lithium? Yeah. You know, all interesting questions. Important research questions. And, and I think that's... Uh, uh, I think we're due maybe to dive in one of these weeks on psychedelic psychopharm a little deeper. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've we've uh, done it in a practical and useful summarized way, but that would be a good one. Just both the theory of it, why, and uh, how those things are controlled for, because you'd hope, and it's not always the case, but you'd hope that the peer review process in academic journals uh, is kind of designed to ask those questions and make you show your work right. and and show and highlight in the discussion that yeah these are the potential confounding variables and uh, and here's why we think it's still uh, something worth studying further yeah right right well any other final thoughts about the wise use of psychedelics um hmm you know. I think uh, I think maybe just there was a quote that piqued my interest recently, and um, it's kind of a, you know may seem tangential, but I think it's by an Andre Gide who said, "One does not discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a time." Hmm. And um, it was in a, a presentation by Maps Canada several years ago that uh, just on the last slide standing, sitting there by itself, but I, I read it and I was like, wait a second. Um, that's really thought provoking uh, in terms of embarking on this journey. There is a risk involved. There's a potential reward. They do need to be considered wisely. They can be used for um, good or for less good purpose, right? Or with uh, positive intent or even recklessly. And, and uh, it's important. Uh, it's an important conversation that I think we've just scratched the surface of. Yeah. Well, I'll let that be the, the final word. Well said, Reed. Okay, good to chat with you, Steve. Likewise. Thank you. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, like the videos, and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, 
or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.